Do you like to binge watch TV? Did you know you could binge listen to podcasts? Head over to electronicmediacollective.com where they have podcasts for days. You like podcasts about wrestling? They have that. Do you like podcasts about TV and film? They have that. Do you like podcasts about horror? EMC has that too. Do you like comedy? Do you like books? Guess what? They've got you covered. Head over to electronicmediacollective.com Pick your favorite podcast today. Hey, this is Nick Benson. You're listening to Moose's Monster Mash. to another episode of the 13 Horrifying Days of Christmas. I'm your host, Moose, and we have with us another filmmaker who you guys should really pay attention to and is doing amazing things behind the scenes. One film in particular, Deadwood Park, we're really going to deep dive into today. But let's not waste any more time. Let's bring him on. Your guest, my gift to you, Mr. Eric Stans. Hello, how's it going? It's going good, going good. How's life? How's the year been? It's been it's been a busy year. I'm I'm thankful for that for sure. Well, definitely a busy year. I mean, you just uh, announced that you know you you were part of the uh, you know you, you directed the documentary for the uh, Adams Family movie that's coming out on the Blu-ray. So I. Uh, what all goes into doing those behind-the-scenes documentaries? Uh, well, I mean, the yeah, the the Adams Family one was a fun one. That was, I know, Paramount's putting they put it out a remastered version of it, and um, they contacted Keith Clark, my producer, and uh, trying to get a, a kind of a retrospective documentary made about that. And there was a, a brand new. Barry Sonnenfeld's interview that was used to kind of anchor the whole thing together. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's stuff where, uh, Keith basically gets the, the whole project organized and he brings it to me. And my, my, uh, primary function is to edit something together that satisfies on kind of like it, it functions as a bonus feature for a Blu-ray and makes the, the studio happy. But also I try very hard and Keith encourages me to, uh, you know, actually try to make the, make these documentaries in depth and give people who are uh, interested in filmmaking or interested in that particular film something to kind of like sink, sink their teeth into and get some uh, some real you know behind the scenes making of stuff in there. So working on them is is always a joy, and uh, especially working with Keith, he's a great producer. So well and. You know, when you're working on these, like, what, what, what goes into like, you know, I, I know you said you're looking for stuff that you know fans can really sink their teeth into and get, get that information. Like, what types of things are you looking for? Like, what makes a good behind the scenes, like, eat your heart out, uh, documentary? Well, the first, the first thing is is what I don't like in a lot of behind the scenes documentaries if you you know i've i've watched a lot of behind the scenes documentaries on dvd for years and years and years as a filmmaker i'm always interested in what what did it take to bring a certain movie uh to life what did it take to get this thing across the finish line and so i've devoured so many behind the scenes documentaries on dvd and blu-ray as a film fan uh, and the the thing that I really strongly dislike when I see them is, if, and you see see this in a lot of these documentaries, is where it's basically just the cast talking about the plot of the film. And I get that that material is in there because a lot of times these behind the scenes documentaries function as promotional material, so they're releasing these things ahead of the the release of the film and trying to get people interested in them because they you know 
they're hearing these big stars talk about the plot of the film and blah, blah, blah. But when you, when you are looking at the actual behind-the-scenes documentary, that's the kind of stuff that I, I hate because it's on the Blu-ray. So we've already watched the movie. I don't need to hear the cast talk about the plot of the film. Uh, so what I've really tried to zone in on, are there are there things that the director was passionate about? Are there things that the production had to overcome to get the movie made? Or what what's the what are the stories from the trenches uh, that you wouldn't be aware of just watching the film? And I try to like you know tell a story that includes all of that information. So you know it's like with the Adams family one, which is the most recent one that's been released. That's, that's, there's a lot of good stories that Barry Sonnenfeld told that we thankfully had enough behind the scenes, uh, photos and whatnot that we could illustrate his stories with, but he had all these, you know, moments that, that were from the production of the movie. The fact that he, you know, was so stressed out making the film that he collapsed on set from stress at one point. And, you know, the story about how the, how he made all these uh, preschool kids cry uh, during the scene where they're being read Hansel and Gretel. It's like all these things that you would just never know if you, uh, you know, if you weren't there. And I like finding all of those bits of information and, and, and getting them into a documentary so that it actually you know, has some real substance to it. Well, and as fans, we definitely, uh, you know, that, that's the stuff that, that's the eat your heart out stuff that we like, because, yeah, it's, yeah. the rest of it's all pretty much boilerplate. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, I, I guess, that, that leads me to, how do you, how did you get into the special feature documentaries? I mean, it, it seems like, not a weird area to get into, but, like, such a niche market. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it, i mean basically I, keith the the producer that i work with on all of these uh documentaries he's somebody that uh, i've known for years and years and years uh we worked at a video production company a long time ago back in the 90s and uh he and i got to be good friends when he jumped in to help me out with the post-production of my first feature film, Savage Harvest. So he he came in and, and helped me get that movie across the finish line. And <clears throat> we found that we had a lot of common interests for both big horror fans and, you know, just stayed, stayed friends. And then he went out to L.A. and he fell into that, that niche market type of thing where he ended up being a, a producer and editor for behind-the-scenes documentaries. And he was working on like a lot of the, a, a lot of big films, um, he worked, he's done like behind the scenes stuff for David Fincher. And I was watching what he was working on. I was watching the documentaries that he was editing or co-producing or whatever. And I was noting that they were really, really good, like way beyond that kind of boilerplate, you know, standard cookie cutter, um, boring stuff you know he, he was making real behind the scenes documentaries and the documentaries that said hey here's how this movie was made and i was impressed just really impressed and uh i just started uh bugging him about it because i wanted to be a part of that and i wanted to do that kind of thing do that kind of work for somebody who was clearly kind of like you know uh, top of their game and doing doing work that I admired, I wanted to just be a part of that and work with somebody that that I had so much respect for. And just kind of little by little, he started uh, giving me jobs, like smaller editing jobs um, for behind the scenes stuff. And then it just as as I turned in my work on each project, the responsibilities grew bigger and bigger and. Uh, you know, went from just editing to editing and co-producing, and um, yeah, I just feel feel grateful that some it's it's a rare and wonderful thing when there's somebody out there working in the industry and you admire what they're doing, and then you say, "Hey, I want to be a part of that. I want to work for that guy," and then that person actually starts hiring you. So it's been very cool. Oh yeah, I'd, I'd imagine it's very uh, 
like dreamful it's like a dream fulfilling uh, feeling yeah yeah i mean in in general that's the kind of the way i operate with you know filmmaking or if it's the if it's my own movies or working on other people's movies or this you know documentary gig it's like i put a lot of value on the people who i'm working with and working for and you know that's if you if you can find yourself uh, either leading a team or on the team, and it's a team that you respect and like, and you, you know, enjoy working for them, and you feel like the people that you're working with are bringing out the best work in you. It's like that's a that's a pretty wonderful situation. As a fan, what would you say is your favorite, like behind the scenes documentary to watch? Because I know mine is the. Uh, Crystal Lake Memories. Oh, I haven't seen that one, actually. Um, that's a good. That's a good one, though. Yes, yeah, it's super in depth. Covers like the entire series of oh, movies, really? and does a, a hardcore deep dive of I like that the uh, Friday the Thirteenth franchise and all the struggles and everything that all all the issues that they had. So oh, that's cool. You know, it, it has. Basically, all those boxes that we just checked off yeah. <laughs> for what makes a good behind the scenes. Cool. And, yeah. You know, granted, it's four hours long, but there's <laughs> 12 movies and, you know, a sure. video game to cover. So yeah. it's, you know, it's pretty long, but it's very in depth and very well laid out. Well, when it's covering the. the that many movies and trying to be in depth and trying to deliver something special as a documentary, then it does need to be four hours long, if not longer. Oh yeah. It's, it's the, the running time is justified. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, I mean, I, I will seek that out because that sounds very cool. It sounds like it's right up my alley. I think that, uh, the stuff that I was most interested in or like in the earlier days, probably uh, hearts of darkness, the making of apocalypse now was one that stands out. That's, Something that when I saw that, I was just kind of blown away by that one. Um, yeah, that's liked, a good one. I liked the, uh, there's like an hour long behind the scenes documentary on the, I don't know if it, it made the jump to Blu-ray, but on the old DVD of the of the Abyss, there's a really good documentary on James Cameron's The Abyss on that one. I've, I really, speaking of long documentaries, the... Uh, the uh, behind-the-scenes documentary for uh, Twin Peaks Season 3 on the Blu-ray. I thought that was fascinating, even though that, I, I, I don't remember, it's like 10 hours long or something. Yeah. I can't remember. It's it's ridiculous, but you can't watch it all in one day type of thing. you got to break it up, but it's. I thought that was really well done and really fascinating. So. Oh, yeah, it's, just, it, it's interesting to see how everybody you know, how all these different directors approach these documentaries mm -hmm. and, you know, what makes the final edit and what gets it, you know, and on these ones that, you know, we've agreed and, you know, the entire fandoms agree are really good. I would mm -hmm. love to see what gets left on the cutting room floor. Right. Right. You know, cause if all this stuff made it in, what got left out? Yeah. Yeah. Because if the stuff that you're seeing is that fascinating, it's like, what choices did they have to make? Like, well, we don't have time for this, but we do have time for this. You do, you do get curious as to what ended up having to be, oh yeah, to be left out. You know, you know what I mean. I've had some long episodes that I've recorded for this podcast where I've had to cut some stories out, and it was it's pretty difficult because they were good stories, but mm -hmm. I, I didn't want a two hour episode. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it's the same way with a lot of these because if <laughs> if you think about it, the you know even if it's a two hour movie, obviously it took weeks and weeks and weeks to shoot that two hour movie. So if you're making say an hour long documentary about it, there's so much stuff that probably has to be left out because with weeks and weeks and weeks of shooting, it's it's almost it's almost crazy to think. Well, how could I how could I pack all of that into one hour you know so obviously some of the stories some of the tales will have to be uh left in the dark 
We'll see. And yeah, that's one of the things I'm learning more and more the more I do this podcast is there's so many stories that mm-hmm. people have. And, you know, depending on your job on the film, you had a different experience. Oh, yeah. You know, like the grips and the DPs had a different experience than the actors. Actors had a different experience than the directors. Right. You know, and everybody, everybody has interesting behind the scenes stories right as a fan you want to hear all of those stories mm-hmm. you know yeah. and it, it's it, it's interesting because in a position like where you're putting together a documentary or i'm putting together an episode you're like okay how many of these can i get out without making it boring yeah and having it drag on but then mm-hmm. As you're listening to them, you're like, damn, these are good stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is true. And as I think it's especially the, the case with the, uh, you know, you talk about the different perspectives. It's like that is an, uh, an added element to the behind the scenes doc is that an actor has a very different perspective compared to a producer or the writer or the director or something like that. It's, it's, so now you not, not only have all these stories that you think all these that are think that you think are interesting and all these, you know, bits of information that seem interesting, but trying to get a well-rounded documentary that includes all those perspectives, it, it does get uh, kind of, kind of difficult because it seems like there's enough there where you could make the thing twice as long. Like you could have a series of behind the scenes series. Yeah. Um, so looking at your feature list, you you have your feet pretty well grounded in horror. Yeah. Was that your plan all along or is that just like you made a couple and you're like, this is what I like. Oh no. I, I, uh, I was a genre fan long before I was able to pick up a camera and start making my own stuff. So I was, you know, when I grew up, it was, I gravitated as a kid, I was gravitating towards science fiction, uh, everything from, you know, Star Wars to like the t- like stuff that was on TV, Buck Rogers and Space 1999. I was a, a science fiction nerd kid. And then uh, I was maybe nine, something like that, when I saw the original The Blob and the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers and something. And I saw those back to back on like late night TV one night while I was spending the night at a buddy's house. And something. Yeah, I had kind of had an interest in the horror stuff, but just when I saw sat down and watched both of those movies back to back, there was something that clicked. And then it was just like, I'm all about the horror film. And it was, you know, the mom and pop video store era. So I was going and renting, you know, a stack of four horror movies at a time and uh, just devouring horror movies. And, and as I, quickly understood that I wanted to try making films. There was no question that they would, that the movies that I would try to make, those were going to be horror movies. So I remember being like in my mid teens and trying to like put together something where I was trying to put together a feature length horror movie when I was in my mid teens, like, Oh, can I borrow this? This is my, my buddy's dad's camcorder. And can I make a feature length slasher film? And, that kind of thing. But it, when I, and then I was like shooting short on eight millimeter film, my parents, you know, old eight millimeter film camera and everything that I did was, was horror. So it just kind of, that just kind of stayed. And then, you know, I'm still a horror fan to this day. That's still this, you know, I like all kinds of movies, but I just cannot stay away from horror film for any extended period of time. Uh, so it's just been part of what I have wanted to do as a filmmaker is make horror movies that I would be interested in seeing. I always love asking that question because I always like to hear what people's like first entry to horror was. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was for me it was uh, the original The Blob and the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And yeah, those are two solid entries. I mean, mm-hmm. especially when you said you were what nine. Around that age, yeah. It was... So yeah, I mean, th- th- those are ones that are, that they they should definitely invoke a few emotions out of you. <laughs> oh yes, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I I still enjoy those movies today, 
But yeah, there's an added layer to it. When I watch them, I'm like, remember when I was a kid and this had such a huge impact on me? So there is that element of it that exists today. Well, and like the one that set me down this track was the uh, 1929 uh, Nosferatu. Oh, yeah. 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 Silent movie, black and white, but just the the elements of that movie. So like that always holds a special place in my heart, regardless of how... How old were you when you saw that? Seven. Whoa, wow. That would have an impact on a seven-year-old. Yeah, and it was just eerie. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't super scary, just eerie. Yeah, kind of entrancing. Yeah. Yeah, and very cool. you, you can just, you know, like you said, you sit back and you remember how you felt mm-hmm. watching that. And so, yeah, it holds, it'll always hold a special place. So, like, yeah, that was the moment. When th- this was my thing. <laughs> when the, the switch was flipped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. You've always wanted to make movies and you started as a kid. When would you say you got more serious about doing it and turning it into like a profession? Uh, the, the, I had, I made a bunch of like, um, high school, you know, movies with my friends. I'd done shorts. I'd actually done a feature, uh, student films essentially. And, and I was enjoying making them. Uh, but I, I think at the time that I was making them, it wasn't even, it, it really wasn't on my radar that I would be able to keep making them for the rest of my life type of thing. I think that I've, I've, I had an attitude of enjoy it while, while you're doing this, because there's no way that you'll be able to, you know, keep doing this forever type of thing. That's just ridiculous. And then um, right around the age of somewhere in the age of around the age of 20, um, I, f- I forget the, the, the specifics of how this came up, but I remember at that point I uh was asked by J.R. Bookwalter, who did, you know, Dead Next Door, and he uh, talked to me about doing a feature horror movie for him, and that ended up becoming Savage Harvest. And as that project evolved and went through production and then post-production, it it had a lot of ups and downs. And in the end, uh, Bookwalter had virtually almost nothing to do with it. He had some, his fingerprints on the movie to a degree, but he, he ended up not even distributing it, but he fulfilled his contractual obligation and made sure that it, uh, it did get, it it did land on, uh, with another distributor. Uh, at the, at that time, I think that it was Bookwalter who kind of, pushed me around the corner and stopped and made me stop looking at this as a hobby and more, more like a profession. Um, and you know, there's a, there are a lot of layers to that story, a lot of layers to how that all evolved. But I always, I always kind of look back on J.R. Bookwalter and our time, uh, you know, organizing and, and figuring all this stuff out and kind of, going through the whole Savage Harvest thing, I always look at that time as that's, that's when I really, um, that's when things changed in my mind. And I, I credit him for kind of giving me that nudge. And, you know, I look at how obsessed I am with filmmaking today still. And I know that at some point I would have probably figured it out how to keep making movies for the rest of my life type of thing. But he was definitely, uh, uh, a, a big kind of like jolt at that time when I was around 20. So nice. It's always nice to have that uh, kick in the pants. Yeah, that's what it was. It was a kick in the pants. I would have definitely gone down that road, but I think that at that time he, he just kind of like pushed me a couple of miles ahead down that road at that, at that particular moment. So, so before we jump into Deadwood park, what uh, advice would you give for people who want to make this a career as opposed to just a hobby? Like, you know, going out and making films. Uh, I feel like there are two camps of people who make it a career or approach it a, like a career. I think that there's the camp that, I mean, it's an expensive 
thing to do, make a movie. And it's a very difficult thing to get the financing or, or get the resources that you need to, to make a movie and then to get it released in such a way that a lot of people see it and it makes a lot of money. These are, unfortunately, the, these are circumstances that uh, don't align with poor people. <laughs> and uh, it, if you want to make like, uh, you know, I want to make a million dollar film and then I want to make a $5 million film and then a $10 million film and so on and so forth and have that kind of a career. You pretty much have to come from money or pretty serious, uh, industry connections to just be a a person with no money and with, with no industry connections and to say, I'm going to make this film and I'm going to be regarded as awesome. And it's going to, launch this mega career it's it's that's a lottery ticket if that happens it's it's virtually impossible um so if you want to launch a career like that in film first step is come from money and or industry connections if you don't come from money or industry connections it just comes down to attitude really it comes down to um, saying I'm I'm directing this feature film right now. No one is paying me to do it, but I'm going to give it not just a hundred percent, but I'm going to pour my guts into it. I'm going to sacrifice and I'm going to starve and I'm going to go without sleep and I'm going to fight to make this as good as I can make it. And the nice thing about that is if you, do that long enough you find that that other people who have the same mindset start to kind of come into your circle people gravitate towards you who have a similar mindset and now suddenly you're a team of people who will be willing to fight to make it as good as possible who will suffer and starve and sacrifice and enjoy it you know not not complain about it not not look at it like oh we're all getting screwed or we're never going to get famous so why are we doing this it's none of that it's just people fighting to make the best movie they can make and once you're in that mode and you know you have to see it through you have to get it released you have to promote it you have to do all the stuff that isn't filmmaking specifically but all the added bullshit that is annoying and you, but you still got to do it anyway you once once you get a rhythm of that it just becomes a mindset like i'm i'm a filmmaker and this is what i do and now i have other people around me helping me do this and then you can get enough momentum to where now all of a sudden there are people all all around the country or all around the world that will seek your movies out and and they'll they'll realize how much effort you've put into them and what they liked about them and the next thing you know there's more there's more people out there going oh I want to see the next Eric Stanzi movie you know so it's a good it's it's a long long process when you're like me where you don't come from money or industry connections uh, it's a building from the ground up. But if you're willing to make that make all those sacrifices and and fight as hard as you can fight to make the movie as good as you can make it, and it, it just becomes a way of life more than say a, a a typical career. You know, I've asked that question a lot, and your answer has to be hands down the most realistic, no bullshit answer that I've gotten to that question. <laughs> And I love it. I used to not be that direct about it. Um, But, you know, it's it's one of those... I've I've had uh, some great experiences working on some bigger films. And I see, you know, what what happens and how the resources are used. And and to be kind of on a million-dollar set... On, a, on the set of a film that's budgeted around a million dollars, you you do you know somebody like me does tend to sit there and think, well, how how could I get to this point where I could be making million dollar films? And you, it's just like you just kind of get to a point where you don't complain about it. You don't complain about the fact that you didn't have the industry connections or you didn't come from money. You just kind of go, hey, I'm going to be grateful for what I've got, and I'm just going to keep going. Hell yeah. So, on that note of 
being grateful for what you got and doing what you do, let's jump into Deadwood Park. Okay. A lob an easy one across the plate. Where did the story come from? I think the the story mostly evolved just out of you know what would I like to if if I'm making this kind of movie with this kind of atmosphere, what do I think would go well with that? What would I like to see? What would uh, what would kind of produce the vibe that I'm trying to go for with this movie? So and you know I do I kind of had this idea that um, there's a, a, a darkness and a dread in just the simple act of digging, you know, it's like that's that immediately brings to mind like it, you know, it's a grave or something like that. So like there was an idea like I, I really want to start this movie with these people digging and make it like, you know, really mysterious and weird and, you know, just the sound of the shovels hitting the dirt, that kind of thing. I knew that 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 would be something I'd like to see at the beginning of the movie. So you know, you start, you just kind of start from there and you're like, well, what are, why are they digging? And if they're digging a hole, what are they going to put in it? And that kind of thing. Um, and then I also was kind of thinking about, um, a nightmare on Elm street where it's, which is a completely different kind of movie, obviously, but the amount of mileage that you get out of children oh, yeah. being harmed, the, just that, somber vibe that comes from that that horrific you know kind of there's a there's a feeling that you get out of just introducing that into the plot uh and you can get a lot of mileage out of that without having to do you don't you don't have to show children getting killed or anything like that but in Deadwood Park I was like it should be about children uh being harmed and taken and killed and that kind of thing and even if we never see that it's going to add a lot to the movie tonally. Uh, oh, yeah. So once okay. I just started putting all those pieces together, then it was like, all right, start building the plot on these elements. Well, see, and one of the takeaways I got from the movie was it was a movie about this is what happens when you bury your past and don't address it. Because that, that, that kind of felt like the overarching theme was, we oh, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about yeah. that. Yeah. You know, and well, that just leads to more people questioning it. And, right. you know, depending on how the situation turns out, it could end up to more people dead. So I, I feel like the, the overall theme is you can't bury your past. You have to deal with your past. That's really interesting that that's the that's the aspect of it that you zone in on, and I wonder how many other people zone in on something like that. That's fascinating to hear people's different people's reactions to the movie and how that how you know what resonated. That's really interesting that that's what resonated with you. Um, because yeah, was, you had this whole town that just buried the, the 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 past mistakes. Yeah, and you have this guy who is now an outsider returning to his hometown and he's looking for answers and everyone's, you know, shying him away. No, you don't want to look into that. Don't look into that. Right. Yeah. You know, and he's like, I just want to know what happened. No, you don't. Yeah. You, yeah. The, the general uh, response is why don't, you, why don't you stop, stop looking, stop addressing it. So yeah. Stop digging up the past. That's, that's the past. Yeah. yeah. You know, well, no, it's still relevant. You know, it's still relevant. We need to know. He wants to know what happened. He, you know, he he can't go on with his life until he knows what happened. Yeah. You know, because of the kids, listeners, one of one of the kids that were killed was his brother. So that's right. his motivation for all of this. Right. He's trying to find out what happened to his brother. So, yeah, it's just it is it, it was that, like like you said, that's kind of where I uh, zeroed in on was it was a. Uh, you know, allegory about, you know, digging up the past and the good and the bad that can come from it. Yeah, that's very interesting. I like that. Uh, now, there's a creature in the movie, in the flashback scene. Mm -hmm. um, was it just supposed to be like a generic creature or was like an or just like demon 
zero or whatever. Because I don't think it was addressed as to what the creature was. No, I I know that we were going for, you know, if there's a, a vampire type, you know, strain bloodline type of thing that we needed to see that it that it it, it happened here. Um, the idea of it being somewhere other than in the U.S. was appealing because that meant that, you know, U.S. audiences watching the movie, it would seem more mysterious to them. Like, what could be over there? What could be in this old world, you know, remaining in this old world that that is that has the supernatural uh, aspect to it? But I know that also we were looking at it like, let's not go into the history or the the origins or whatever of that specific being. It's just a being over there and it bites the guy and he comes home with whatever he's infected with, whatever vampire type of thing he's infected with. And it was, um, it, it didn't seem like, it didn't seem like it was part of this movie to go into kind of what was the background of that specific creature. And I, I like that. Um, I like, saying, okay, it happened over there and we're going to leave it over there and um, not kind of, I mean, Deadwood Park kind of goes in and out of a lot of layers and it goes in and out of a lot of, you know, it's kind of like a ghost story and it's kind of like a vampire type story and it's got a lot of of moving parts to it so that actually seemed like a moving part that we shouldn't spend any significant amount of time on and let it kind of be just this mysterious thing. It happened over there, we're going to leave it over there, and we're going to tell the story of how it impacted the people here in the in the U.S. after the guy got home. Well, now that you told the story of how it impacted here, do you think there's enough meat on the bone to uh, delve back into, like, the creature's story and do, like, a backstory on the creature? Because, see, I'm one of those weirdos that it's like, I want to know more about that guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, so as in, like, you're talking like in a prequel scenario yeah. or something like that. I mean, that any time that I get enthusiastic about, you know, what I'm writing or or what we're doing when we're making a movie, it, there always uh, there's always that element of, oh, I'd like to know more about this aspect or this person or whatever, and that interest. Uh, could definitely feed a prequel or a sequel. I say because a, a sequel could even fit too. Because yeah. now that you know the story's been flushed out, and you know without giving too many spoilers away, the survivors know what happened, mm-hmm. and you know they could try to go back and you know it, it wasn't just this one guy now responsible for these children's murders. You know, there's a trail at this point. So, yeah, and, I, and, I, and, and when I'm in just like that, just like what you're doing, I feel like we, while we're making the movie, have similar reactions where it's like, oh, look at all this stuff that we could explore. And uh, I think what ends up happening is by the time the movie comes out and we've released it and we've promoted it and we've you know, I'm a, by that, by the end of that whole process, I'm just like a burnt out mess. Oh yeah. So as much as I might have that, that's kind of how it works is I pour everything into the movie while we're making it. And then I'm burnt out and collapsing at the end of promoting it upon release. And then there's an element at that point, there's an element in me that's like, I don't, I don't even want to look at Deadwood Park for like three years or so. At least, you know? <laughs> I don't even want to touch this movie. I don't want to go near it. And and so any thoughts of a sequel or a prequel tend to vanish during that period of just, you know, exhaustion. And then I've had enough of it. Um, and then those, by the time you get around to, okay, I'm not burnt out on Deadwood Park or whatever. You, you're, again, interested in those uh, unexplored layers of the story. Um, you know, the, I just... I think that I end up having too many other ideas for other things I'd like to do as a filmmaker. And so it's like, Oh, I got this brand new idea that I'd like to develop or this new idea that I want to start working on a script for it right now. And all the new ideas end up being distractions. And then you kind of, and then, you know, a movie like devil park just fades farther and farther into the past. And, and 
those unexplored bits of territory in the narrative end up being kind of like lost to a degree. You kind of don't, you know, you, you just kind of lose touch with them and you're on to the next thing. But it doesn't take away from the fact that there is stuff there that, that could be explored and probably a lot of really interesting stuff. Oh, yeah. And one of the one of the other things I zeroed in on, I was really curious, where did you guys film this? Deadwood Park was shot, we shot most of it in uh, Missouri, kind of southwest of St. Louis. Uh, but then the, the abandoned amusement park itself that was shot, actually, it was a combination of two abandoned amusement parks that we shot at to kind of make the one abandoned amusement park that you see in the in the story. And so we shot one uh, down in Arkansas and then another one in Ohio. Um, I can't remember the names of the towns now because it's been a while. I say it's been some years, but... yeah. But the, but that's what I mean. We were just I had things that I wanted to see. I wanted to see, you know, some. I wanted to see the, the abandoned roller coasters and whatnot. And I wanted to see, you know, I had it in my head that we were going to be in the train tunnel for a portion of the of the movie. And and you know, I had things in mind. And Jeremy Wallace, uh, producer, was just kind of like spent most of that production pulling his hair out, trying to figure out how I would get those visuals. Where could we go to shoot those things? And uh, he, uh, you know, basically was like, well, we can stitch it together if we shoot these portions of the abandoned amusement park down in Arkansas, and then the rest of the, the abandoned amusement park at this place in Ohio. If memory serves, it was actually the Ohio Film Commission that... Uh, kind of set him on the path as to the as to where we could shoot the uh, amusement park stuff in Ohio. Uh, again, I can't remember the name of the town now, but I know that the amusement park that we shot in Ohio, I, I think that's long gone now. I think that's condominiums now. See, it, it amazes me that places like that exist. I mean, obviously, yeah. like the one in Ohio you said doesn't anymore, but because um, they're just, I mean... They lend themselves great for a movie like this, but they're just so creepy to look at. Like, you know, one of the parting shots in the movie, you get that the the look at the rundown Ferris wheel and mm-hmm. everything is just like, you know, I, I can't I couldn't imagine driving past that every day without thinking yeah. something weird is going on in that place. Yeah. It's yeah, just a normal place. setting. I mean, it's just. Yeah, the place where we shot in Ohio, I remember it, it was way off the beaten path, so you couldn't actually see it from any kind of like, uh, you know, fully functioning road or anything like that, if memory serves. But uh, but once you once we were there and once we were in the park, the I think what you're talking about it does kind of it settle settles into you. You're there and you're seeing it in person, and there's something so off and eerie about it. Uh, you know, it was like when I was there, I was just trying to, to capture that as best I could for the movie. Um, you know, try to point my camera at the things that had that seemed to have the most impact and try to come away with as much footage that kind of felt right. Uh, but it, it still is kind of one step removed from the way you feel when you're there, when you're in an environment like that. It's definitely, it's definitely weird. And there's, there's something very off about it well i mean yeah like just watching the movie you get that like weird haunting vibe so i couldn't imagine actually experiencing it you know in person yeah it would definitely be a bit unnerving yeah i mean it it was it's a very hard to describe but there's something when we were in that abandoned amusement park in ohio there was something that was both uh it's a weird combination of being disturbing and I don't know comforting is the right word there's something that that even though it was so it felt so off there was still something that felt like I think it's because it just removes you from 
when you're in a place like that, it removes you from your, you know, adult life where you have to think about, you know, paying your bills and all this kind of stuff. It's like once you're out there, all that stuff goes away. You don't have to worry about you're not thinking about, oh, I need to get that thing repaired on my car or I have to get this check in the mail to pay my electric bill or I need to go grocery shopping. Once you're out in a place like that, all that real world stuff goes away. And I think that's why it's both haunting and comforting. Let's see. And now it's your mind's running wild with what the hell's going to happen to me out here. <laughs> yeah, that then becomes something of a focus. It's like when you pull into like a little, uh, I call them murder stations, the rundown gas stations in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> and you get like Texas Chainsaw vibes. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and you're just like, give me my gas. I got to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been in a few of those those murder stations. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Where, you know, the later it gets in the day, you're like, I think I got 12 more miles of me. We can go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> life or gas, exactly. life or gas. <laughs> I've seen this movie. I ain't doing it. Mm-mm. <laughs> you know, but yeah, it's the, you know, the, the, the way the movie was shot was great. Uh, I think the story laid out pretty well. It's kind of a slow burn at the beginning, mm-hmm. but I, I think that really pays off at the end. You know, because you get a lot of exposition at the beginning, but you kind of mm-hmm. needed that mm-hmm. in the, in this case. And just overall, like, I've seen Deadwood Park like five times. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> you know, and e- e- each time it's, you, you kind of latch onto something else or you notice something that you didn't see the time before. And wow. it, it's... One of the reasons I really wanted to talk about it is, like, it's a horror movie with one of the sweetest endings I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) You know, just everything comes to a close, just super sweet. You know, like, the happy ending, like, it's a horror movie with a happy ending. You know, and Mm. you don't get that very often. No, that's true. And so it's like, this is awesome. (laughs) Wow. Well, I'm I'm happy that that uh, that it connected with you to a degree. That's awesome. You know, because and you know, to that point, I mean, usually you get like you know the final girl, or you know, and then there's trauma, or so, you know, there, there's something. Mm-hmm. You know, but this one kind of wrapped up pretty well in a nice little bow. I, you know, there there was closure. You know, yeah. it, it wasn't. You know, like like we talked. Could you do a sequel? Yeah. You know, do you have to? No. You know, I remember when we were when we were making it, there was some discussion about the ending where uh, I, I think people were kind of coming up with, well, wouldn't here at the end of the movie, wouldn't this happen and wouldn't this happen and wouldn't there be this element and wouldn't there be this element and certainly valid suggestions being thrown around. And I, I kind of just resisted all of that. And I felt like, no, let's I would really just like to close the movie on this note. And if there's other stuff that would happen, if there's other stuff that could be addressed, then it's fine if we don't address it on our own because on this, you know, for the ending of this movie, because I just like how I, I like the idea of it just ending like this. Yeah. That sort of um, quiet ending was what I wanted. So. I say it was quiet. It was somber. Yeah. And like I said, there was, you know. The, 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 his story's finished. Right. You know, and... Well, I mean, you could really couldn't ask for more out of a movie. Or a story, really. I mean, that, that's... When you go into a story, that that's what you want. You know, a beginning, a middle, and an end. If you don't have an end, you get frustrated. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, I guess. And, you know, and this one definitely had a very nice ending. And... Oh, cool. Now, I, I will say, without going into uh, too many spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it, there's a uh, death that happens, and I kept expecting, like, the eyes on the body to open up or something. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not so much into that. <laughs> you know, it's just based on, you know, you know w- what we've been trained for as, uh, you know, horror fans, you know, because the camera pans back over there a couple times, you're like, okay, are the eyes going to open up? 
Yeah. Nope. Okay, cool. Awesome. Yeah, no. Yeah, the the eyes snapping open at the end type of ending is not one that I'm I'm particularly fond of. Yeah, and yeah, I think it definitely would have ruined the uh overall feel good moment. Yeah. So yeah, no, I I can't say enough how much I love this movie. This was well, it was really good. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I need to catch up on all your other ones because I keep watching this one over and over again. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I will get to them because I I, I like your shooting style is fun. You you. you from what I got with Deadwood Park, you put it into, as, like you mentioned, you, you try to convey as much of that real-world ambiance as you can on screen. And, like we said, it, it plays through. So I mean, the, the, the being focused on atmosphere was something that I, I remember that being forefront in my mind when I was shooting. It was just like getting the tone right something that I was, I remember being like, I, I gotta, I gotta work on this. We have to have it feel like this. So it was, it was important to, to, you know, shoot it at the right time of year. It was important to, you know, when we're out at the, at the old family farm, like try to shoot it at a point when the leaves are turning and maybe when the leaves are starting to fall off the trees and just working hard to get the the right vibe and the right tone and the right just making that atmosphere so so knowing how the midwest works how cold was it when you were shooting in the fall <laughs> well what it, our fall usually lasts about a day and a half here in, in missouri so we were able to you know i think land on those exteriors at just the right time to where we were able to get that vibe and the colors were correct in the trees. And we even had some of the leaves falling in our shots and that kind of stuff. It was, that was great. Um, then we were into the winter though, like almost immediately. So the stuff that is in the, the church basement, the, where they're, you know, where the, the, the digging happens and where, the main characters come down to to get the thing out of the trunk near the end of the movie and all that stuff. When we're shooting in that church basement, um, that was actually the sub-layer of a barn, not actually the basement of a church. So we're in the sub-layer of this barn, which means we're there's no heat, there's no nothing like that. If you're outside, you're, you're basically, it's the same as shooting outside. So as soon as fall was done after that brief little moment, then it was like winter descended on us uh, in a major way. And so all that stuff that we shot that was church basement stuff, it was painfully, painfully cold. And you had an entire crew of people that were bundled, bundled up. And you had these poor actors who were still dressed in their fall clothes. Like, yeah, they're long sleeves, but it's not they're not bundled up in any way. So the actors had to endure some uh, pretty painful, uh, frigid weather when we were shooting that stuff. Oh, yeah, because, you know, here in the Midwest, you know, our winters tend to start with very cold rain before yeah, it turns yeah. to snow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll get a few nice fall days and then it's just bitter cold rain. Yeah. Well, where in the country are you? I'm in Nebraska. Oh, okay. You know, so yeah, it's we'll get a pretty good summer, and then blink and you miss it fall. Yeah, exactly. And then cold winter, and then snow in like February. Yeah. You know, the seasons don't know what they're doing anymore. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the seasons are a bit confused. Yeah, you know, so we we have fall, cold spring, winter. Uh, <laughs> um so this has been fascinating and fun what other projects do you have uh that, that, that you're working on right now that you can talk about uh well uh, i just, i'm trying to think what i can talk about i know that um it's always a tricky question 
Yeah, because there's some of the stuff I've I've been sworn to secrecy. Uh, I'm I am in the the middle of a of a big behind the scenes documentary edit again. This one is for Lionsgate. I don't think I can talk about that one yet, so I'll play it safe and not tell you what it is because I don't want to get in trouble. Uh, also, just like what three or four days ago, I think. The, I, I wrapped production on a feature film that I did not direct, but I was the director of photography on. Uh, that just wrapped. And uh, I don't think I can, I'm not entirely sure. I don't think I'm permitted to talk about that one yet. I know I can tell you it's a crime thriller slash horror movie. And it's and uh, Bill Mosley is in it. Uh, I don't th- I don't think I can say anything else. In fact, I might get in trouble for having just told you that. I have no idea. So I'll, I'll just shut up about it now. But anyway, I just finished DPing that movie, and I am also about one third of the way through post production on the new feature film that I directed. Uh, but we're trying to keep that under wraps until we're closer to the release date. So I can't go in detail about that. And so, yeah, it's a whole lot of, I've been working nonstop on a bunch of stuff that I can't give you any details about. So, so what you're saying is they're going to have to pay attention to social media and watch for these big projects coming out. That's right. That's exactly what people can do. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, I would uh, invite people to go out and and see the the most recent movie that I directed, which is In Memory of. That one came out in 2018. And I was also the director of photography on a film called Tennessee Gothic, um, which was released in 2019, I think. So we had a we had a big burst right before the pandemic and then pandemic shut us down. And then all of a sudden I've got all the. All the gears are turning again. I just can't describe any of the of the details. All but the secret are. projects. Yeah, but we do have. <laughs> but we. Do, I would do invite people. Jeff Wedding uh, directed uh, Tennessee Gothic, and I was his director of photography. Jeff's a very talented uh, filmmaker, um, and Tennessee Gothic turned out really awesome. That actually just this past summer played. Uh, it won best feature at the Joe Bob Briggs. Um, uh, what was that? The jam- the the Joe Bob Briggs Drive-In Jamboree thing that was held in uh, in at the Mahoning Drive-In. Uh, Tennessee Gothic played there and got best feature. And uh, like I said, the movie right before, came out right before that. In memory of that's a movie that I directed, and those are currently available. And I encourage everyone to seek those out while you're waiting for the details to emerge of all these other top secret things that I can't talk about yet. Well, while they're you know waiting, where can they find you know to keep up you keep up with you on social media about all your secret details? <laughs> well, uh, I'm most active on Facebook and Twitter, so you can find me on the Facebook and you can find me on the Twitter. And uh, our production company, Wicked Pixel Cinema, there's a we have a page on Facebook that will throw out an update when anything new is happening you can also uh check in with wickedpixel.com and see any news that's that that is emerging there you can also go to ericstanzi.com uh there i'll tend to post about not just the feature movies but i'll post you know that there's a lot of stuff on there about like the documentary stuff that i do and whatnot so um yeah and so find me on twitter as well now, unless I'm mistaken, you can also buy your features on uh, ericstanzi.com, can't you? Uh, on wickedpixel.com, you on can. Wicked we Pixel, have a web okay. store at, at wickedpixel.com that you can pick up uh, DVDs and Blu-rays. And for a brief period of time, until quantities run out, you can actually get Jeff's movie, Tennessee Gothic, at wickedpixel.com as well. So if you're interested in picking up any of these motion pictures on the physical media uh yeah check out wikipixel.com and uh and see what we have to offer there and listeners 
like always, I'm going to post all those links in the episode description for easy access. And you can find me and other great podcasters over at electronicmediacollective.com or on Twitter at Moose Media Inc. And Eric, like I said, this has been fun and very enlightening. And good. Yeah, we'll bring you back on when some of these uh, secret projects come to light and we can talk and talk about and promote some of them. That'd be awesome. I'm I'm there. You know, and just want to thank you for coming on and hanging out today. And, you know, listeners, go check out Deadwood Park. Check out his other projects. Go buy his DVDs. Or if you want, you can rent most of them on Amazon. But go buy the DVDs. Be sure to tune in tomorrow for another episode of Moose's 13 Horrifying Days of Christmas. And until next time, Horror Hounds, mash on. This has been Moose's Monster Bash. Come back for more chills and thrills if you dare. Whoa! <laughs>